0: TheYeshiva.net Welcome to everybody joining us from all over the world, United States of America, our brothers and sisters in Florida. May Hashem protect them all. Bring Gnissim and flyers to Klal Yisrael and to all those who are anticipating great miracles. And our hearts and prayers are with all those who have lost Loved ones in the surfside tragedy and our hearts and prayers are with all those who are waiting for nissim, waiting for miracles. We should hear only Psurus Taivas, Yeshua's amen. Amin Kenyihiratsan. Thank you everybody for joining us. Today is Thursday morning, of course. Chav Aleph Tammuz, Topshin Pei the 21st of Tammuz, 5781, July 1st, 2021. Today's class is dedicated by a dear friend, Reb Mendel Zilberberg, in the loving memory of his father, Harav Akiva Ben, Harav Reb Avram Binyamin Zilberberg, in honor of his father's yard site, this Shabbos on the 23rd day of Tammuz, Chav Gimel Tammuz, which happens to be also the yard site of the great Ramak, Rabbeinu Moshe Cordovero, the author of the Paradis and Taim and many other great Kabbalistic works. The Ramak passed away in 1570 in Svas, the old cemetery in Svas, You'll see the Ramak is buried, the Arizal, who passed away two years later is buried right near the Ramak, so that's also Chav Gimel Tammuz. Our Akiva uh, Zilberberg was a well-known and dedicated Asken and activist for Harvotzes HaToyer of Yerushalayim, a great Talmud Chacham, a skian of a great dynasty of Torah scholars and teachers. And during his years, back in Europe and then in Pittsburgh and then in New York, he dedicated his life to spread Avos Hateira, Avis Hashem and Avos Yisrael, May his memory be an everlasting source of blessing and inspiration to his family, to his children, grandchildren, to the whole and to all of us, and to all of the Jewish people. Amen. So we began on Monday, segment one of a Sikh, a shir by the Labavitcher Rebbe in Lakute Sichos, volume eighteen, parshas Pinchas. Analyzing and dissecting a Rashi in Pinchas, we did the first section in the in the previous year, and now we're going to do the second one. Thank you for uh, posting the PDF on uh, on the chat in the Zoom. Yes, please open your PDF. If you're on the Zoom, they just put a link in the chat. You can find it, or you can go to theyeshiva.net. T-H-E-Y-E-S-H-I-V-A dot net. And you'll see the top shear. What's the title? The title is Thursday Class, The Rebbe's Take on Intermarriage. And over there on top of the video, you'll see view source sheets. And you can open your source sheets or below the video, there's download and you can download your source sheets because we're going to be learning inside. But before I begin, I just want to say, you know, sometimes when you're learning one of the things I've seen over the years learning myself and teaching and learning with others is that people often don't realize and don't master the full structure of something. They hear a vart here and inside here a perspective. Okay, here's a question, here's a proof, here's an answer. When you ask them to give you the full picture, what's called the Kudas Hatamtsas, the it's called in the Kabbalah, to be able to really... uh Present the full-fledged picture, like a structure. Every every sicha is like a home. It's an edifice that's built. There's a beginning. There's a middle. There's an end. To be able to be able to capture the full holistic experience, it, only then does one really have a, at least somewhat of a grasp and an understanding. So, uh, when you finish learning something, reviewing something, whatever it may be, a blad gemara. <laughs> A parasha chumash, a perik mishnayas, a sif in or a simon in yeah, Or a Sikha of the Rebbe, a Sikha of the L'Bavich Rebbe, or a maimah that we learn, in lakutu toida, toida, whatever it is that you're learning. At the end, to be able to really grasp the full picture, see the whole idea that was being presented, but also be able to convey it at least generally, through the details, through the Pratam that were conveyed, so that the person really gets a feel, a full understanding of it. So, what I'm going to do now is give a very brief summary of everything we learned in the first section, in the first year, for two reasons. Those who were there, it's not for those who weren't there, it's for those who were there. (laughs) To be able to really just get the full picture, it's going to be a very brief summation, and then we're going to go on to section two. If you didn't learn section one, you'll still understand section two, but it's still worth it to review Monday morning's class because it'll give you a, a fuller understanding. So let's begin right away. The context of this Sikh is Arashi and Pashas Pinchas after a devastating, a devastating catastrophe that befell the Jewish people. Many, many Jews fall prey to the temptations of promiscuity with the young women of Midian and the women of Mayov. In addition to that, they fall prey to the devastating and strange idolatry called balpa'ir. They begin worshipping it, and you know, as Rashi says, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, the way they worshipped Baal Pa'er was that you actually defecated and urinated in front of this idol, this deity, and this was the way to worship it. We're not getting in now who would invent such a form of idolatry. It's a fascinating discussion, but it's beyond the realm of this class. Now, in many ways, this was one of the greatest disasters in Jewish history. In fact, the Gemara says that the problems of Balpa'ir still plague the Jewish people till the resurrection of the dead. Moshe passes away at the end of Chumash, and it says, Where is he buried? Mul Beispar, is buried parallel to this, one of the pagan ashrams of, of Balpar, which is a very strange location to identify Moshe's grave with that. And the our sages explain the meaning of it and the reason for that. I'm just trying to bring out how serious this issue was. And you're not talking about a few individuals, you're talking about, as we learned, hundreds of thousands. In other words, a huge percentage of the Jewish people. This wasn't a small percentage. Mamish, a huge percentage. And as a result of this, there was a plague, a plague, an epidemic, a mageifer, that claimed the lives of 24,000 Jews. In addition to that, in addition to that, the Pesach says that Moshe, to- Moshe told the judges to judge to bring to court, so to speak, in the desert, anyone who has uh, committed these capital crimes. And if there was appropriate witnesses and appropriate warnings and everything, there could be a death penalty. It wasn't easy to get a death penalty in Jewish law. But Moshe Rabbeinu tells the judges that those Jews who worshipped idolatry, who engaged in Baal Po'er, they should be given the death penalty if, they warrant it if they deserve it. Okay? So you have a plague. You have a magaifa. Ah. And you have all these people who were killed through the courts. Granted. Comes the Pasek and Pinchas and says, after the plague, after the plague, after the epidemic, what happens? Hashem tells Moshe and Elazar. Elazar is, of course, the successor of Aaron. Count the Jewish people. I want you to count everybody from 20 and up, up, up those who are eligible to go and serve in the army. And that's what they do. And the continuation of the parish deals with the senses that's taken, the reckoning, the senses that's taken of the Jewish people. Comes Rashi and says, After the plague, after the plague, Hashem said to count the Jewish people, and he gives the famous metaphor. The shepherd and the wolf. What was the metaphor? There was a shepherd and wolves. Wolves came in to his flock. They came in latoich adorei. They came into the flock and they started to kill sheep or goats or other cattle. So the shepherd starts counting the survivors to know how many survivors there are in the flock. That's Rashi's metaphor. To explain, he doesn't say what, why, he, why he's saying this metaphor, but obviously he wants to explain something. Then he gives a second explanation, Dover Acher. And the second explanation is, when the Jews left Egypt and they were given over to Moshe as a leader, they were given over to him through a census. They were counted after the exodus. So they were not just, God didn't just say, here, take these people. It's with a number, with a cheshmer. Now it's time for Moshe to give back the sheep. When he was given the flock, when he was given the flock, it was with a number. Now the shepherd needs to give back the flock because he's about to pass away. Later in this portion, Hashem is going to tell Moshe to go on top of the mountain. He's going to pass away. That's when he appoints a successor. This is the parish where Moshe begins preparing for his passing. So how do you give it back? You give it back with a number. So Hashem tells Moshe, count them, and then you'll give up the flock. Those are the two insights in Rashi. Now what's bothering Rashi? It says, After the plague, Hashem said to count the Jewish people, fine, what, what do I need an in interpretation here? Let's go on. So what's bothering Rashi? So the Siv Seich the Devik you see it in the, in the footnotes of the Sicha. explained, very simple. Very simple explanation. What's the connection between the plague and the census? It says, It happened after the epidemic. God said to count the Jewish people. Why after the Mageypah? What's the connection? Even if one happened after the other, the Torah could have said, after this, he said to count the Jewish people, the Torah says, and it happened after the Mageypah. Furthermore, the Torah didn't have to say anything. The could have just told the story of the epidemic and then say, the next portion, God told Eliezer to count the Jewish people. We would already understand that it was a chronological order. Usually it's, it's, it's chronological. But the Torah says, no, it happened after the plague. This means that there is a thematic connection between the two. So this, it actually has to explain. What's the connection? Because there was a plague, therefore we should count? Why? Counting is a good thing. You take a census. Nations take census all the time. Every few years, I think in America, every 10 years, we take a count. It's part of the law. You got to know what's going on. You got to know how many people you're handling with. I understand. (laughs) In the army, they take a census. People take census. (laughs) What's the connection with the plague? So now she has to say, because a pack of wolves infiltrated the flock and they killed many sheep, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no kidding, many sheep were killed. So the shepherd counts, he wants to know what he's left with. That's why, after the plague, God says to count the Jewish people. Makes a lot of sense, beautiful. Sifzich says this. Chemam says this, who else says this? The Devak says this. This is the basic, the basic, uh, yeah, Sifzich and Devak Here's the problem. The problem that Rebbe raises is, this can't be the explanation in Rashi. And here the Rebbe is going to ask eight questions. Eight questions. That these, all of these questions bring him and us to a different way of understanding Rashi. And again, I told you, in summaries it's important to get the full picture. So you want to get all the questions. What are the questions? Question number one. Let's go fast. Question number one. If this is the meaning in Rashi, we have a problem. He already said this in the beginning of Bamidbar. Over there there was a count. Forty years earlier there was a count. Rishchai Dishir, the second year after they left Egypt, there was a count. So Rashi says, why? And he says, God loves the Jewish people and therefore he's always counting them. Of course, if there's no change, you don't have to count them. If you have a money in the safe and nothing changed, you don't have to count them. Whenever there's a change and something could have been affected, there's always a count. They leave Egypt, he counts them. They sin in the golden calf and many perish, he counts them again. He builds the Mishkan and brings the Shechina among them, he counts them again. Whenever there's some type of change, he counts them. That's what Rashi said. So it's a very clear why he counted them here. Just like it says earlier, when they fell in the golden calf and he loves them, so he wanted to count. He wanted to know how many were lost and how many are still here. Here again. Many Jews were lost. He counted them. Rashi already explained it in the opening of Bamidbar. Why this need for a whole long explanation and a whole long metaphor? So you're going to say, "Well, people forget what he said earlier. This was Bamidbar. This is Pinchas. It's a few Shabbos ago." Okay. So remind us briefly and say the reason we were counted Achri is to know the survivors. Why do we want to know the survivors? You already told us because we love us. I got it. No, Rashi gives us Rashi doesn't say he loves. He gives he doesn't even talk about love here. He doesn't say, God loves us. He gives a idea that there was a pack of wolves that went in, and there was a shepherd, and the shepherd wanted to know. You already gave an explanation, God loves us, and therefore whenever there's a dramatic change, especially when there's loss, you want to count five, so remind us of that explanation. He seems to give here a different explanation, at least a different touch. That's question number one. Question number two, why is there a need for a metaphor? A metaphor is here to explain something that's incomprehensible, or at least it's difficult to wrap my brain around. So you give me a metaphor, a parable, an illustration, an allegory. That's why people give me shalom, you give metaphors. What's the the difficulty here? That Moshe was a shepherd of the Jewish people is quite clear at this point of the game. For 40 years, this man has led the Jewish people through difficult and easy situations. He led them with absolute commitment and self-sacrifice that we have seen again and again and again. Now we fought for them and prayed for them and rescued them and saved them. In fact, when the Rebbe said the zicher, it was Shabbos Pinchas Tovshin summer 1974. The Rebbe added, it's not here in the print, but the Rebbe, when he spoke, the Rebbe added, he said, it's the other way around. If you want to bring... If you want to explain what a shepherd looks like, you use Moshe as a metaphor. <laughs> if you want to give a workshop for shepherds, how they should take care of their flock, the illustration has to be, Moshe la Moshe, let me tell you how it works with Moshe, and then shepherds should learn from Moshe, Moshe doesn't have to learn from a shepherd. Moshe was the, the archetype, Moshe was the, the ideal shepherd. Like Itaka, the first story about Moshe, what does it say in Shemais? Moshe was a shepherd. <laughs> As the Medrash famously explains over there. Why do we need a metaphor with wolves that come into the, to the, to the, to the corral, to, to the flock and kill them and the shepherd is worried and wants to know? Just tell, tell me the point. Moshe cared for the Jewish people. He was their leader and he wanted to know how many survived. Question two. Question three. Yeah, you with me? The are you with me? The Bezriel, you with me? Okay. Question three. The metaphor is inconsistent with the story here. Who told Moshe to count the Jewish people? The owner of the sheep. Moshe is the shepherd. Moshe takes care of the sheep. But the owner of the sheep is Hashem. Rashi says in the metaphor, the shepherd went to count them. That's what Rashi says. But in the story here, Hashem told Moshe to count them. It's the owner of the sheep who told Moshe to count them. So there's something inconsistent here. But that's not what Rashi says. Rashi says, The shepherd counts them, not the owner. But in the story, it's the owner who tells the shepherd to count them. Question number three. So you're going to say, you'll answer, No, Hashem is telling Moshe to do something that he should be doing and he wants to be doing. Okay, fine. But Rashi could have just said that. Rashi could have just said, The metaphor is that wolves came in and they ate sheep and they killed sheep. Right, And the owner said, let's count them. (laughs) Just just make it suitable. That's question number three. Question number four. In the Medrashim, in Tanchuma and Medrash Rabbah, the source of this Rashi, Rashi actually didn't write this on his own, he got it from Medrash. Over there, the metaphor is brought in context of the owner of a sheep. Number five. Question number five. In Pashas Kisisa, you have almost an identical Rashi, almost verbatim. Rashi says that after the Jews created the golden calf. God told Moshe to count them. And he gives a metaphor. And the metaphor is what? There was an epidemic and many sheep died in the epidemic. And the owner of the sheep who loves the sheep told the shepherd, please, I beg you, count them. He wants to show everybody how much he loves and cherishes his flock. So Rashi already in a similar situation where Jews died after the golden calf, gave the same metaphor and there he attributed it to the owner not to the shepherd. But you know why? Because this was Hashem's idea not Moshe's idea. It was the owner's idea not the shepherd's idea. Here Rashi repeats the same idea. He changes it. He changes it the way it says in Medrish. He makes his own metaphor that the shepherd did it when it's completely inconsistent with the story that Hashem did it and it's inconsistent with what he himself writes in Parashat Kisit in a similar story. That's question number five. Which brings us to question number six. In the previous story, he says there was a pan- an epidemic. Here he says there were wolves. <laughs> In fact, the epidemic makes much more sense. Because it says, What's a magifa? A Gaifa is not wolves. A Gaifa is not a pack of wolves that come and devour sheep. A Gaifa is an epidemic. It's a plague. That's what a is. Avinu Malkeinu, we said to, the fast day, Avinu mina mageifa It's That's a mageifa. So now she should have given the right metaphor. It's not wolves, it's a mageifa. That's what he said before. By the eagle, he said there was a devil, there was an epidemic, and therefore the sheep died. Here he changes it. Suddenly it's wolves. It's very strange. That's six. Number seven. In Parshish Kisisi he speaks about love. The owner of the of the flock wanted they to be counted to demonstrate his love to them. So when some are lost, he wants to know who's lost and who's left because he loves them. Here Rashi ignores that expression. Over there he uses twice the word chaviva lohidiyashi chaviva alaf. Moshe chavivim al he doesn't say a word about chavivus, about love. He just says there was a shepherd, and the shepherd saw the wolves came in, and sheep were killed, and he wanted to know how many had survived. What happened to this love, to this affection? He ignores it completely. Number eight, question number eight. This is in a footnote. Why does Rashi say z'eivim, wolves? He should have said a wolf, a wolf. Why two wolves? Rashi says, One second. Vim wolves? Why wolves? One wolf? You say, well, it was a pack of wolves. Why do you need that? So you'll say, what's the difference? I'll tell you the difference. In Medrash, where Rashi took it from, it says, Ze'ev, one wolf. Rashi, again, changes. He says, wolves. What's missing in the metaphor if it's one wolf that came in and wrecked, wreaked havoc, and that's why he counted them? And then there's the ninth question. And the ninth question is, why does Rashi need a second interpretation, achir, that the reason Moshe counted them was because he was about to die and give them back? He says, why do you need a second explanation? What's wrong with the first explanation? In fact, the second explanation is inferior to the first explanation. That's why he says it as a second. Because the second explanation does not explain the connection to the plague. It's connected to Moshe's death, not to the plague. And that's why Rashi puts it as the second. He says, but why does he even need it? Why does he even need a second explanation? What's wrong with the first? When Rashi brings a second explanation, Rashi doesn't quote every comment, commentary that's there in every medrash on every pasik. He only brings those com- that commentary that explains the literal meaning of the pasik. That's Rashi's raison and the Yatra's mission statement. So when he brings a second explanation, it's because there's something lacking and missing and disturbing and not unsatisfying about the first. Those are the nine questions the Lubavitcher Rebbe poses. I hope I didn't lose you guys. You're taking notes good. (laughs) Nine questions. You could review it. You could review it afterwards, even if you didn't understand everything. What's the answer? What's the answer he gives? So somebody asked me, somebody asks here, why don't we just say that it's possible that Rashi made an error? Rashi just made an error, and that's why, that's how you answer the Rebbe's questions. No, you tell me, what do you think? What do you think about your own answer? (laughs) Just without getting into uh, many details, I don't know exactly how to respond to it, but I'll just give a very basic response to you. And that is, when you, When you read a, a book, a commentary, and you see genius, perceptiveness, meticulousness, precision, rhythm, and infinite depth in every word and every sentence, and then you stumble on a question, what do you think is the most intelligent thing to say? The person made an error, or I should maybe investigate a little more. To give you a very practical example, if you're studying your own body, your own biology, and there's something in your body that you think is useless or inconsequential, you know, there are a few things in the body that scientists still struggle. You know, why do we need them? (laughs) Wisdom teeth, whatever it is. What do you think is the rational conclusion? There's 80 trillion cells and each one plays a role. The body is filled with endless different dimensions and components, and each one contributes something to life. Now you come across something you don't understand. So do you say, ah, the whole organism is just one big mishmash, it's a mistake, it's all an error? Or maybe I have to search a little deeper. That's the answer to your question. Next question. Are the 24,000 students of be Ya'kiva the same souls of the 24,000 People who died in the plague. Oh, that's a good question. Yes, that's what Arizal teaches, but it's beyond the realm of this class. One more step, it's the 24,000 people who were killed in Shechem by Shimon and Levi by the story of Dina. Okay, but that's a separate, that's a separate class. So let's now get to the answer. What's the Rebbe, what's the Lubavitcher Rebbe's answer? His answer is, Rashi, we have nine questions that have to be answered. Nine questions. (laughs) And the answer is one answer. And that one answer answers all the nine questions. Why? The answer is, what was bothering Rashi was not why, after the plague, God would say to count the Jewish people. That we already would understand. What's bothering him is something else. There were two factors that caused the deaths of Jews. I mentioned it in the beginning. One is a plague that claimed 24,000, but there were more than 170,000 who sadly and tragically warranted the death penalty. And as Rashi says, the judges had them killed. Their lives were taken. More than 170,000. So now I ask you, if it's 176,000 versus 24,000, and you have to mention a cause of loss, you have to mention... Something that caused the loss of so many Jews. Which is the greater one? The Mageifa, which claimed 24,000 lives? Or the executions that claimed the lives of 176,000 Jews, as Rashi says at the end of Balak? This is more than seven times the amount of the first. 7 times 24,000 is what? 168,000. So this is more than 7 times, and the trader is silent about it. It says, After the epidemic, he says to count the Jewish people. After the epidemic, why? Because you want to know the survivors, yeah? Because you want to know how many were lost, and you want to know who survived. Shouldn't you mention the much more titanic devastation and catastrophe, the much larger and greater Chorban that happened with the death of 176,000 Jews? So it should say, after the death of all the Jews, the pandemic too, the the epidemic too, the magaifa too, but that's 24,000. Not to underestimate 24,000, God forbid, but you ignore completely the loss of a number that's seven times larger than 24,000. You ignore it. I don't understand. After the plague should you say, all the Jews that were killed, 176,000, plus the Pegeif? The Torah ignores it. That's a serious question. What happened? It goes so far that there's Mufarsham, If you look in the Rabban, you look Rabbeinu Bechayeh, there's commentators that say that the judges didn't kill anybody. The plague took care of everything. Rashi disagrees. Rashi clearly says at the end of Balak that the judges did kill, according to the law of Torah. But I'm telling you how far it goes that some commentators say, even though Moshe said we have to kill those who deserve the death penalty, it never materialized. You look at the Ramban, has a whole discussion on this. He brings it in the footnotes. But Rashi clearly says that there were these death penalties. You completely ignore them in the aftermath of the story? I don't understand. Imagine a person, (laughs) a person has a huge company. And in the company, there's a safe. And in the safe, there's five million dollars. And somebody comes in, thieves come in and they steal five million dollars. Five million dollars are gone. The same time, there's another thousand dollars, not five million dollars, thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars in one of the drawers. And another thief comes in and steals that money. Now you're making a reckoning. <laughs> What's left? So you say, by the way, you know that what happened to this company? Five, ten thousand dollars were stolen. You say, hey, you got a bigger problem. You got five million dollars that was taken. Ten thousand dollars is important. Don't ignore that. When you're making a reckoning, it's like we have to figure out what's happening here with the money because ten thousand dollars were taken. You completely ignore the five million dollars. Something is strange. There was a much there was another major catastrophe. Clear question. So for this, Rashi needs to explain something. And that's why he gives a unique metaphor. And that's why he needs a metaphor, which answers question number two. We're now going to give an answer that's going to answer all the nine questions. We're going to answer eight, we're soon going to get to the ninth. There was a shepherd, and a pack of wolves came in. And the wolves killed the sheep. And the shepherd wants to know the survivors. And this answers everything. (laughs) This parable of Rashi answers everything. Why? So somebody says here, it's apples and oranges. The ones that died through the judges, it was a rightful punishment. You're right, but the ones who died by the epidemic was also a rightful punishment. (laughs) It came from God. So, Rebbe Tzenaviva, I hope that's answering your question. So the explanation is as follows. When an owner of sheep takes account of the sheep afterwards, after there was a loss, what's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is, he wants to know how many sheep are left, how many died, how many survived, why? Because he cares for them. He, as Rashi says, al <laughs> I, I care for it. This is, this is my cattle, my sheep, my animals, my money, my assets. I care for it. It's irrelevant if it happened because of a hurricane, a tsunami, a natural disaster, an earthquake, or because of lionesses or a pack of wolves who came in and my shepherd was negligent. That's a separate situation, but the owner makes account in any situation, whatever the cause of death was, I care. And therefore, I want to know what I'm left with. I want to know how many were lost and how many survived. The reason for it, negligence or natural disasters that I can't blame anybody, but Mother Nature or God, that's irrelevant to an owner taking a census. Because the reason I'm taking a census is because I care for this thing that I lost. For these flock, for this flock that I lost, many, many of my sheep, many of my goats, many of my animals, many of my mammals, I care for them, and therefore I take a census. A shepherd is an employee. He doesn't own them. When he takes a census, he's not the bookkeeper. Why is he taking a census? He has a job to do. He's not the owner. He doesn't own these sheep. He's an employee. That's what we're talking about. There's the owner and there's a shepherd. He's not the owner. He's the employee. He doesn't have to take a reckoning. He's not, it's not his thing. How many there are? How many there were? The owner wants to know because it's his. I want to know what I lost and what I still have. Great. The shepherd works. So here is the sheep. Go do your job. Why would a shepherd take a census? This is one reason. If a shepherd feels responsible, if I feel that I may have done something to contribute or at least not to avoid the catastrophe, I now feel responsible. And because I feel responsible, therefore, I want to take a reckoning. Because I tell myself, I have to rethink how I'm doing this work. So I have to start all over again. Got to press control, alt, delete, and start over again. So I want to know how many sheep I now have to take care of. Because I cannot just go back to the way things were before. I can just say, okay, let's move on, whatever there are. No, no, I need to make a plan because I feel negligent. That's the difference between the senses taken by the owner, the senses taken by the shepherd. Okay, number one. Number two, what's the difference between an epidemic and a pack of wolves? An epidemic the shepherd can't avoid. Coronavirus travels or another epidemic... Spanish flu travels. There's nothing the shepherd can do. A pack of wolves? There's a lot to do. You can build a wall. You can have dogs. You can have a stick. You learn how to chase away wolves. There's ways. People do it all the time. The epidemic the shepherd couldn't avoid. The pack of wolves? He feels responsible. Got it? Now point number three. What was the difference between the sin of the golden calf and here? Sin of the golden calf, Moshe was on the mountain; he wasn't there when they did it. He was completely not connected to the consequences. There was a there was an epidemic. There was a Magaifa. Three thousand Jews. No, three thousand Jews were killed. But there was I a. Mean, it doesn't say. I don't think it says how many Jews died in the plague by the golden by the golden calf. But it wasn't connected to him. Unfortunately, he was on the mountain. God said, "Go down, He wasn't there. What about here? What happened here in Pasha's Bollock? What happened? What happened was the Jewish people engaged in promiscuity, in adultery, in idolatry, and a plague broke out. Hashem, a plague broke out against the Jewish people. It says when the Jewish people did this, Vayich Hashem, God's wrath was burning. As Rashi says, there was a magaifa. And that's when Moshe tells the judges, you have to give the death penalty to those who deserve it. And then what happens is, there's a man, his name is Zibri, Zimri, and he publicly, publicly cohabits with a Midianite princess, princess by the name of Cosby. And he does this in front of Moshe, and he speaks to Moshe, and he tells Moshe, I'm doing it because of you. You married a Midianite woman, Zipporah. I'm allowed to be with a Midianite woman. And Moshe and everybody is weeping, he does not know what to do and what to say. And that's when Pinchas reminds Moshe, there's a ha kanoyim by. If somebody publicly has intimacy with a non-Jewish woman, kanoyim, the zealots are allowed to kill him. They're allowed to kill him without a court case. Once he stops, once he's, fin- once they separate, you're not allowed to. You would be killed. You would be given the death penalty. You don't kill somebody outside of court. There has to be a court in order. But there's a few situations ha aram is somebody who's having a relations with a non-Jew sexual, uh, uh, promiscuous, intimate relations. That's what Pinchas does. He kills Zimri, he kills Kazbi, and that's what causes the pandemic, the epidemic to stop. And Rashi says, alma me halacha. Moshe forgot this halacha. So everybody cried. Everybody cried. There was a reason Moshe forgot the halacha. Hashem wanted Pinchas to become a kayan. But Moshe forgot the halacha. So Moshe felt responsible for the plague. Because when Pinchas did what he did and he killed Zimri, the plague stopped. But not before it claimed the lives of twenty four thousand Jews. Moshe felt I have responsibility here. In other words, it's not an ep- it's not an epidemic. It's wolves. Why does Rashi say wolves, plural? So the Rebbe says in a footnote because the deaths came from the ma- for the deaths came from the wolves. The sheep died from the wolves. But there were two sins. There were two wolves that caused the death. What were the two sins? Idolatry and adultery. The Torah says, number one, there was terrible harlotry with all the women of Midian and Ma- with many women of Midian and Ma'ev. Number two, there was the idolatry of Par. Wasn't one wolf? There were two wolves. The two wolves infiltrated and killed the sheep. Two wolves. <laughs> the Magaifa came because of two reasons. If this is now the case, everything becomes clear. By the eagle, Rashi talks about an epidemic. And Rashi says, who's counting the sheep, the owner, simply because he loves them. I don't care if you were responsible or not. It's not about blame. I want to know how many Jews survived the sin of the golden calf. And he speaks about a pandemic, an epidemic. Keep on using the word pandemic. He keeps on, he keeps on, he uses the word epidemic. Why? Because. It's not the guilt of the shepherd. He's not responsible for it. He was on the mountain. The owner said to make a census because he loves his sheep. He loves the Jewish people and every Jew is precious. Every Jew that was lost is precious and every Jew that survived is precious. I want to know who I have. Here, here. It's a different count. Moshe wants to do the count. you know why? Because he's the shepherd and he feels responsible. Because he feels vulnerable, he wants to know how many sheep he has left so that he should understand now how to make a plan for the future that this will never happen again. So I have to know. I have 600,000, 603,000 sheep. I have to figure now out a way how these people are going to be protected and this will never happen. Never again will there be a Magefa on my watch. There's also another point here. Important to emphasize another point by counting them. And counting the survivors, Moshe realizes how many were lost. He realizes. He realizes 24,000 were lost. Because you see the contrast of the number before and the number now. And this reminds him. His responsibility. And it reminds him about the sin of negligence. So there's two things here. Moshe wants to take the count. He wants to be reminded to see clearly what his so-called negligence relative to his level has caused. When I count the losses, it wakes me up. It tells me the truth. This is what's going on. This is what you have to face. That's number one. Number two, he wants to know the numbers so he could make a new plan of how to lead them. I'm saying these two points because people who learned this didn't understand. Both points are important. The sicha emphasizes both points. Ah, now I understand why he doesn't talk about the other deaths. Only the magaifa. The other deaths... Moshe couldn't feel guilty for that. They were done according to halacha. These were Jews who committed capital crimes. There was a system of law that was followed, and that's why they died. Moshe couldn't have done anything to avoid it. Moshe can't take away free choice from people. So this was not his responsibility. But the plague, this he felt responsible for. Because he forgot the halacha, number one, and because Zimri confronted him about his own wife, and it's his marriage that justified, and he had no response. So here Moshe felt responsible. That's when God tells Moshe to count. Why? Because this is a count that's associated with the shepherd. God is telling the shepherd, I you need to count, the Jews. This is your thing. Why is it your thing? because there was a mageifer, the other Jews, 176,000 is a significant loss, but that's not something that Moshe feels culpable for, he doesn't feel that he's responsible, he couldn't have avoided it, here the magaif he feels he could have avoided at least he could have minimized it, so that's why he wants to do a count, so that he should remember what has been lost under his watch, because of something he has not done, to be careful, never ever ever to allow this to happen under his watch, and also, to be able to reformulate a plan for the future. He has to know how many sheep he has. So that's why Rashi can't use the word the owner. He uses the word the shepherd. That's why Rashi doesn't talk here about an an epidemic. He talks about wolves. That's why Rashi says two wolves. Not one wolf, but two wolves. This is why Rashi has to give a metaphor He can't just tell you Moshe wanted to count them. He has to explain to you the idea. It's a wolf. It's not a plague. All the eight answers are answered. All the eight questions are answered. The ninth answer, the ninth question is not answered. Why he has to bring a second explanation. Question. Why couldn't Moshe just know the reason why it happened and then he would prevent it again? Yeah, he didn't know the reason. He knew the reason because of the Magaifa, and that's what plagued him, pun intended. And because it maybe pl- because he was going to die, then he couldn't correct. Oh, 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 oh good question. Good question. You know, I know it's a good question. That's the Rebbe's next question. The next question is: Moshe about to pass away. Moshe is about to pass away. The shepherd says, I want to count all the flock. I want to know how many were lost. I want to know how many I have. Why? Because I want to always remember what my negligence may have caused. And I need to make a new plan for the future. So I want to know how many flock I'm responsible for. And that's the purpose of the count. Both to know the losses and to know the survivors. So that we can make a plan for the future. One second. In this parsha, Moshe is going to appoint Yehoshua Benun as a successor shouldn't have he then joined the census. Hashem should have told Moshe and Eliezer and Yehoshua to count, because he's the next leader in a few months. It's not in a few years. Great question. Rebbe You did well. Great question. Reb Aaron the Hearst. Yehoshua is the next leader. is not going to be around for 10 years. He's not going to be around for 20 years. He's not going to be around for one year. This happened in the last months of his life. Remember, Aaron already passed away. Aaron passed away, Aaron passed away, Rishchidosh of previous parash. So this is, there's only six months, six months left from Moshe's death. Six months, Moshe would die, Zion other Soon, Rishchidosh would start Sefer Dvarim. So there's literally, a, this is in between Aaron's death and Moshe's death, those few months in the 40th year. Moshe can't make here long-term strategic plans, devise a strategy how to lead the people. Your time is up. And he knew his time was up. God already told him in Chukas that you're going to pass away just like Aaron passed away and Miriam passed away. So this is a beautiful explanation. Moshe wants to remember what negligence can cause. Moshe wants a plan for the future. You should have bring, your, bring Yahushua into this. He's the next leader. You're going to appoint him soon. In this parasha, God says appoint Yahushua. Whether it was a day later, or a week later, but it's this time. Now you'll say, somebody said, well, Moshe could have counted them and then he could have given the number to Yahushua. He could have told Yahushua, here's the number of Jews so that you would know. But that's not the point. The point is not giving him the information. The point is when Yeshua is involved in the senses, it creates that awareness. It creates that consciousness that Moshe wanted as a shepherd to be able to really see what happened, to be able to see the losses as a result of the plague. That's what inspires and it empowers and invigorates you. By doing that senses, you're also, number two, reminded in a very visual way of the losses. It's not just give me a number on paper. It's seeing it by counting Jew after Jew after Jew after Jew. You get to see it. Yeshua should have been part of that experience, part of that process, which would inspire a deeper type of leadership. In other words, Moshe, if you're a real shepherd, then think a few months ahead. Think about the next shepherd. If you're a real shepherd, you don't just think about yourself. You think about the next shepherd, right? We all understand this. It's a very important concept. The great leaders think about the day after. He wanted to take responsibility. He wanted to take responsibility. I'm not saying to blame Joshua. I got it. I got it. But but Elazar was part of it. You're saying Moshe had to do it exclusively. But Hashem told Elazar to be part of it. And why did he say Elazar should be part of it? Elazar wasn't guilty. I think the answer is because Moshe and Aaron did things together. Aaron passed away. Elazar represented his father. Elazar represented his father. And Elazar was a leader. So even though he wasn't Moshe, but he was a leader, we see that the daughters of Tzlovchot people came to Elazar. So that's why he wanted Elazar as well. But Yahushua is the next leader. And if the whole point here is real leadership for the future, bring in Joshua. So the Rebbe says, that's why Rashi knew that the first explanation, as beautiful and as eloquent as it is, is insufficient. It's missing this touch. It doesn't satisfy this question. That's why he has to bring a second explanation. What's the second explanation? That the reason this census was conducted is because Moshe was about to pass away. And God said, I gave you the sheep with a number, now give it back to me with a number. This is only for Moshe. This is not about the responsibility of the shepherd because the wolves infiltrated the flock. This is about Moshe was a leader for all these years. You received a gift, you received this flock with a number when they left Egypt, now we give it back also with a number. This is something that's connected to Moshe himself. Why Elazar? Because I said it's Moshe and Aaron who were given the Jewish people. Aaron passed away already, so Elazar represented his father. But Yeshua was not part of this. This second explanation in Rashi answers this detail That still remains difficult from the first explanation. Why Yahushua is not part of the census. Why doesn't Rashi bring the second explanation as the first? Because the second explanation has a much bigger problem. And that is the connection with the plague is very unclear. It says, After the plague, he said to make the census. According to the first explanation, we understand why it's after the plague. The whole reason for the census is because of the plague, because of all the losses. Moshe wants to know how many survived and how many were lost. As we explained at length, but according to the second explanation, that Moshe is now about to pass away, so he's giving back the Jewish people. Thought to speak with a number it doesn't have to do with the plague. It has to do with this timeline. After the plague, at some point, but the Torah connects it explicitly with the plague. The second explanation doesn't. Explain this. That's why he uses it as a second explanation. First explanation is the primary one because that gives a clear explanation to why he gave the association between the plague and the census. But there's still a problem. Why wasn't Yehoshua part of it? So he has to give a new second explanation. Now, somebody asked me a big question on this, and I'll address it at the end of the sicha. Let's now go to the next point. Yes, that's unique. That's unique. That in the middle of a pasuk, there's a new Parsha. And after the words Hamagefer, there's a new Parsha. You see Pei, there's a Psucha, something unique. In the middle of a pasuk, there should be a new Parsha. Which he discusses also in one of the footnotes. Let's continue now. Se'iv so go to your source sheets, or you can open up a Likutai Sichas volume 18. That's also fine. Or you can go to Project Likutai Sichas, the Sicha they're learning this week in Project Likutai Sichas, and you could learn, you could follow it over there. So where are we? if So in our source sheets, that would be page 331. 331. We answered all nine questions. The Rebbe answered all nine questions that were posed in the class. If something was unclear, that's why there is replay. And if you need double speed, I give permission to listen on double speed. If you need 2.5, that works as well. If 1.5 works, it works as well. I know that Bezriel always says he doesn't listen on double speed because you don't listen to music on double speed. But for some people it's music, and for some people it's something else. So they could listen on double speed. Fine. Se'if Ches. Se'if Ches. We have one major question left. What's the question after everything said and done? What's the big question now? The big question is Medaf <laughs> Abefashtei, and there we come to the to the to the grand finale. Huh? I thought we ended the last year at um, Zion. You're right. We ended the last year on Zion, and I just said the whole Zion outside. <laughs> I said the whole Zion outside because, because of time limits and I want to finish, so therefore I did Zion outside. Thank you for noticing. Thank you for noticing. It means a lot. Sometimes people don't notice if I'm holding Zion, Vav, Hey, Dalet, Gimel, or maybe I could... Uh, you know, somebody once said, when you give a speech, they said like this, a story you could repeat... Once in two years, because people remember a story for two years. A joke, you could repeat once a year, because they remember a joke for a year. A Dvar you could repeat twice in the same sermon. So it's very, very meaningful that somebody actually knows where I'm holding. So I did Zion outside. I love to do it inside, the language is very rich and, and ösious machkimos, right? Seeing inside makes you wiser and you understand it more. But let's go to ches. Medav darf aber verstehen. Verstehen means understand. Favos is dotake gewende minyen mit sadem roye moish rabeinu, und nicht mit sadem ebersten der baal hat sein. Ume der zu wissen, kamen nois rubehem lo heidia shi chavivachului. Und dem altvaltas gewende sai. The er Neisadam from the Magi, and say from here go Ishan Rashaav, ukeniskir balhat zoyin. Is benegailin yin a minion kein nafkim inen nidvi azoyin. It's signs and an umgekommen. Gavaldik a question. You explained, We explained everything, but one thing is, is problematic. Why didn't God want to count them on His own as the owner, just like after the eagle, just like after worshiping the eagle. Hashem wanted to count the Jews. And Rashi explained in Parshish Kisisa because the Baal Hatzayim, the owner of the sheep, loves his flock. And because he loves his flock, he wants to know how many were lost and how many survived. And even though God knows everything, he wants to demonstrate. He wants to show and display for all to see that he cherishes them and he loves them. Why was that element missing here? It's true Moshe Rabbeinu felt that he shared responsibility in the epidemic. I got it. And that's why the shepherd felt that he also wants to count. But just because of that, it doesn't eliminate the factor that the owner cares about the losses. And here, that is completely absent. In other words, Rashi is explaining what the pasuk says by he achrei Beautifully, beautiful explanation. The way the Lubavitcher Rebbe understands it. But now let's get back to the very essence of it. This doesn't answer the bigger question: Why does the pasuk only mention the magefa? Because the pasuk only speaks about Moshe's desire to count them because he feels responsible. But why is there not the element here that God wants to count them, just like he wanted to count them at previous occasions, just like he counted them after the Chet HaEgel to show his love to them, and then the Pasuk should have said, "Vayhi Achere, it happened after the Mageifa, and after all of the deaths of more than 170,000 people, or however the Pasuk wants to say it, after all the deaths through the judges, because as we said, for the owner, there's no difference In terms of counting how they died and who was responsible and who was not responsible. He just wants to know who survived and how many survived. So the owner needs a census and it's no difference if they died because of a mageifu, they died because of the judges, because the death penalty, if Moshe was responsible, Moshe was not responsible, as we said. In terms of the owner and his census, it doesn't make a difference who was guilty and who was not guilty. It makes a difference for other things. If he's going to keep this shepherd or not, perhaps. If he's going to sue him. But but in terms of the senses, it's about the sheep I own. So why don't we have this element here? It's completely absent. And you see, Rashi doesn't use the word love. Rashi just says the shepherd wants to know how many survived. And we explained why. Because he feels that he's responsible, partially responsible, and he wants to make sure it doesn't happen in the future, and therefore he wants to count so that he could see what losses he caused, and he could figure out the future plans. So Rashi doesn't use the word Chaviva. Fascinating. But why is that element missing here? So here we come now to the last piece of the Sikha. and it's a very intense explanation, very intense, and even more powerful is the duality that the Rebbe is going to demonstrate. Two extremes that seem so paradoxical and yet really are one. Is the beer in them, the explanation is What happened here? Why was there an epidemic? And why did all these Jews die by the hands of courts? And the answer is Bo'yel they had relations with these heathen women, with these heathen girls of Mayav and Midian. Was from Pyrrhus Rashi fired them, as can no by boy, unkeine based in a weiter, verstehts in the bekamerslimmikra, die äussergewöhnliche Harpkeit von der Aveda, bis es es gebracht zum verloren gehen. Von around 200,000 Jiden, um wie Rashi bringt auf dem, el Shal shall is Wow. Rashi said at the end of Balak that there is a unique halacha. Usually when somebody commits even a capital crime, you need to bring them to court. You need to have witnesses. The witnesses have to warn them. You need a bezdin. It's a whole process that is very intricate and very complicated before you can give a death penalty to the point that the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin that there were sages who said that they would only give the death penalty once in 70 years. And one of them said, I would never give it. I would always find a loophole because you can always find a loophole. Here we have a unique idea that if somebody is if somebody is engaged in intimacy with a non-Jewish, with a Gentile woman, the halacha is, people who are true zealots, like Pinchas, are allowed to kill him, without bringing him to court, without a whole process, without an investigation. Once the intimacy is over, he's not allowed to, and if he does, he can get the death penalty, because he's considered a murderer. You can't just kill somebody that you think is a sinner. But in the middle of the act... There's a halacha of Kanoi and Pagman. That was the justification for Pinchas. That's the halacha that Moshe forgot. And Pinchas went and he took his spear and he killed Zimri and Cosby. And that's when the Mangeifah stopped. This is what Rashi taught us at the end of Balak. This means that even a child, a five-year-old child understands that this sin has a heinous and serious element to it that is absolutely unique. You don't have witnesses. You didn't bring them to Besdin. In fact, if you go to Bezden and you ask them, hey, Zimri is being together with Cosby physically. Can I kill him? And what would Besden say? They will not tell you to do it. This is not something. They will not tell a Jew to do it. Bring him to court. Bring him to court. We'll discuss it in court. <laughs> and by the way, as we will see, there's no death penalty on, in, on, in court for somebody cohabiting with a Gentile woman. It's a sin. It's an Issacharis, but there's no no death penalty. The only penalty that can be given is, while it's happening, through a kanoi, through a zealot who doesn't ask Bezdin. If you ask Bezdin, they're not going to tell you to do it. (laughs) What do we see from here? That we're talking about a very serious sin. And indeed, as a result of this, around 200,000 Jews perished. That's a crazy number. It's an insane number. Because we had 176,000 from the death penalties, plus we have another 24,000 from the epidemic. So how many do we have? 176 plus 24. It's so 186, 196. Exactly 200,000. He says approximately 200,000 because we're not giving flat numbers here, but approximately 200,000 Jews were lost because of Boiler And Rashi brings earlier that Bilam told Balak, you want to destroy the Jewish people? Their God is Soyne zima. He hates, he hates zima. He hates Sexual promiscuity. It's something God does not like. Well, you could say God doesn't like any bad thing. That's true. But this is something unique. Soi This is something that God is allergic to. When he sees a breakdown of moral boundaries of intimacy, this is something that God loathes. So the Rebbe says, so over here you can't say the idea of chavivus. The idea of love to those that were lost. Because they were involved in such a serious sin that this is what you hate you don't love and what you love you don't hate. And therefore in this case, unlike the Chet HaEgel, the Chet HaEgel was idolatry. But idolatry, if you see somebody worshipping idolatry, you're not allowed to kill them. You're not allowed to kill them. If you kill them, you get killed. You have to bring them to Bezdin. You need witnesses. You need a whole process. It's not easy. This is a unique exception. So the, even the child learning understands the seriousness of it. And that's why Rashi says from Bilam that God hates it. And Bilam said, if you do this, if you get them to do this, they will be destroyed. And Bilam was successful. 200,000 Jews went. Because of this, to say that God would count them afterwards as a display of love to those that were lost, Rashi doesn't see that. Rashi says, no, this is something unique. This was something very serious. And that's why we only focus... On Moshe's count, not on God's count. Moshe counts them because he's a shepherd and he feels responsible. But the same senses that God said after the Chet Ha'egel, because the owner loves his sheep, was not applicable here because of the unique sin. Now he gets in a little deeper. The Yumtakal Derechalacha to explain this more, to sweeten this more. Hamtaka <speaking> Yumtak <in Hebrew> is a beautiful word. Yumtek <speaking in Hebrew> means we're going to make it sweeter. <speaking in Hebrew> we're going to make it sharper, sweeter. Give it a little more salt and pepper or a little sugar. <laughs> Let's explain this from a halachic perspective. If a Jew cohabits physically with a Gentile woman, a Midianite, a Moavite and so forth, it's not something there's a death penalty for. Even if there's warnings and there's witnesses, somebody who intermarries or somebody who just has in, in, intimate relations with a Gentile woman. There's no death penalty. There's no lashes. There's no sacrifice, there's no monetary compensation, there's no death penalty, absolutely nothing. There could be a heavenly death penalty called kareis between you and God, which today the whole concept of kareis is already a different concept, as explained in Tanya Geris tshuva, and you could do chuva for that, but there's no earthly death penalty. Absolutely not. It's not like when somebody commits adultery with a Jewish woman who's married. If you commit adultery, a, there could be a death penalty. If you have relations, God forbid, with an animal, with another man, with a sister, with a mother, with all the arayas, all those promiscuous relationships over there, there can be death penalties. But if you have relations with a non-Jewish woman, there's no death penalty. There's a heavenly punishment that's between you and God. There's one exception. And that is, (laughs) While the person is in the act, a person like Pinchas can go and kill them and that's fine the moment later you're not allowed, to. comes the Rambam and says, you might think that intermarriage is not such a big deal. And I'll tell you why. There's no death penalty. If you commit adultery with a married Jewish woman, there's a death penalty for you. And for her. Depends, of course, if it was done willingly, and she wasn't forced, she, and, and you, you know, nobody was forced, and there's witnesses, there's warning. It's not easy to get a death penalty, trust me. <laughs> it's very, very hard. Unless you are a Meshugan, and if you are a Meshugan, you anyway didn't get a penalty. But intermarriage, boyel aramis, being with a non-Jewish woman, there's no death penalty. So the Rambam says, fascinating Rambam, you may take it lightly. So he says, boyel aramis is ached b'lash b'lashin ar Rambam. The Rambam says in Hilchis he surei b'epedikud beis halacha zayin. Quoted in Tur and Evana Ezir azer tezayin, as he says in the footnote, yes boy harayus the Rambam says, I want you to know that in this sin, there is something that no other promiscuity has. None of, no other arias. Arayis means all immoral relationships are different than this one. There is something unique about this that you will not find in all of the other promiscuous sins. Despite their severity. Shahabinha min ha'erva b'noi hu if somebody engages in a relationship and has a child, even if that relationship is absolutely wrong and sinful and immoral, the child remains a Jew. He's considered a Jew. So if somebody, God forbid, has relations with a married woman who did not get divorced, what's the status of the child? A mamzer. A mamzer is a full Jew. A mamzer is a full Jew. Somebody, God forbid, has relations with a relative that's forbidden. You have relations with a relative that's forbidden. The child is a Jew. Any type of relationship that is forbidden between a Jewish man and a Jewish woman, even if it's absolutely immoral and even if there can be a death penalty, the child is a Jew. There's one exception. When he's with a Gentile woman, the child is not Jewish. Rabbeinu Yosef rose in the Shavikon, the Tafnas Panayach Pashas Balak says, is men ma'ivin de de basr. This sin is unique because as a result of that you destroy Jewish souls because these souls that are coming from the Father will not be Jewish anymore. These souls are going to become non-Jewish souls as a result of this act of intimacy with a non-Jewish woman. So there's no death penalty. You're right, the court will not punish you. But the Rambam says don't take it lightly because there's something unique here that doesn't exist in any other relationship. Even those relationships that the Torah calls arayis, they're immoral. Thus, haste. let's explain what this means. All other sins that a Jew does even those relationships that are completely forbidden in Torah nonetheless the person does not trespass the borders that God created between the Jews and the other nations what do we say in the havdalah hamavdil bein kodesh bein ben yisrael amen there's a havdalah there's a border God chose Jews to be Jews and he chose non-Jews to be non-Jews. And that Havdalah, that separation, is genuine. It's part of the system of creation. There is a Jew and the Jew has his or her mission and his or her soul. And there's a non-Jew who has his or her wonderful mission, his or her wonderful soul. Every human being was created in the visage of Hashem. Every person is a reflection of God. Every person's life has absolute and non-negotiable value. Like it says in Yerushalmi Nadarim tes Allah Dalit that Rabbi Akiva said the most important principle of Torah. Klal gadliz, And Benazai said, No, there's something even more important. Bidmus eloikim Asa Every human being is carved in the image of God. So the Karbine, there was a commentary on Yerushalmi. Rabbi David Frankel, the rabbi of Berlin, he passed away 1762. He says, What's the advantage of Benazai over Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva says that the possek is, you have to love your fellow Jew like yourself. Benazai says, I'm going to bring you a possek that includes all of humanity. Every person was created in God's image. Not only a Jew, every single human being was carved in God's image. And that's why that possek, he says, is a more important principle in Torah. Fascinating Amari, you're Shalmi. Shalmi nadarim Periktes, And also brought in Torah's kayanim k'dashim. I say this because sometimes people who were molded and educated with a strong Jewish education, don't appreciate the fact. Benazah here, the greatest tanam, is arguing with Rabbi Akiva, and he says, more important than Va is the idea that every human being, not just Jews, every person was created in the image of God. And therefore, every person's life has absolute value. And therefore, every person's, every person is a source of inspiration. Because every person reflects God in a unique way. This is true with the Jews, true with the non Together with this, there's Hamavdil bin Yisrael amen. There's a border, there's a Jew, and there's a non-Jew. And to go from a non-Jew to a Jew, it's a different soul. It's a different shlich, it's a different mission. Any sin that a Jew does, even idolatry, adultery, and other sins, very serious sins, they do not trespass this border that God wove into the fabric of the universe. There's a Yid and there's a non-Jew. And each has their destiny, their vocation, their mission, their purpose, their shlichas. Because even after a Jew does a sin, he or she remains a Jew. You remain a Jew. The famous Gemara in Sanhedrin memdalad about Achan. Achan, the Gemara says over there, he did five of the worst sins. You could look it up. Sanhedrin memdalad what the guy did. Trust me, he was no saint. Five of the worst, heinous sins in Torah, And the Gemara says, <laughs> He remains a Jew. A big sinner. And he got serious penalties. It's a whole Sugi there in Gemara. And not only that, the Gemara says there that Yeshua wanted God to tell him what Achon did. And God said, I don't speak Lashon HaRach. And then the Gemara goes and tells us everything he did. Well, I thought God doesn't speak Lashonara. The answer is the Gemara wants to say, Afal Pishachati Yisrael, who doesn't mean only somebody who doesn't come from Minchitashu. Or somebody who doesn't put an Abinatam's film, somebody who doesn't Dava in my Nusakh. Afal Pishachati is somebody who does everything that Achan did, which was terrible, terrible, still Yisraelu. There's one exception. Is there a sin that I can do in which I can trespass the border? I can cross that essential eternal border that God created between Israel and Amim. Is there anything I can do? Shimon, is there anything a Jew can do that allows him to become not Jewish? What's the usual answer? Come on, Chabad House 101. Is there anything that you can do to become not Jewish? And of course the answer is no, but really there's one thing. What? listen to this ma kind is er or be male is not taken minion the chivivos. Ley the minion hanay saris. Divas habenid gezindig. Zane nidkei noy sarim. From the chaitim, I says kiiluvisivot nishgeven kein shayches bichivivos tzvishen zay. Wow. There's one exception when somebody has relations with a gentile woman. His seed, his seed, is a Jewish seed. His seed, his sperm, his seed of life. Is Jewish DNA, it contains the potential for a Jewish soul. If it's now conceived, incubated, and developed in the womb of a Jewish woman, even if that relationship is promiscuous and immoral, the child is a Jewish child. One exception, if he has relations with a Gentile woman, what happens? That seed, that zera. That relationship, his child, which essentially carries, you know, his chromosomes, which contain his nafish. It's a Jewish soul. But what happens to that soul? That soul crosses the boundaries of creation, it crosses the boundaries that God created. That gvu, there's a Jew and there's a non-Jew. And my child is not Jewish. My child is not Jewish because his mother, it's not Jewish. So you took a Jewish nefesh, you took your seed, you took your chius, you took your soul, because in your child there is your seed, your DNA, your soul, your nefesh. And what did you do? You transferred it into another world, into another universe. There's no Haveri in the world that does that. Every other Haveri in the world is and even, even when the child is a mamzer, the child is illegitimate, the child is blemished, but he's a Jewish child. You didn't go out of that realm. You remained in the realm of Klal Yisrael. Now this doesn't mean you didn't do something serious. The Rambam says, somebody who's ovedavodazorah, somebody who engages in idolatry, somebody who desecrates Shabbos publicly, hareyu kigoy, he's like a guy. So the wine is yayinesech, but he's still a Jew. <laughs> Half still a Jew. The famous Raj. Kuf If a Meshumed, a Jew converts, a Jew baptized, a Jew completely leaves Judaism, becomes an Oved and then he betrothes a woman, she needs a get. Even though you say he's a guy, he's a guy. different But essentially, we call him a Jew. The Gemara in it's an argument in Reb Meir and Reb Yehuda. The halach is like Reb Mayer, Benkach or Benkach. Kedushan Lamad Vavamad Beis. <laughs> Bein Kachu, Bein Kach, Bonaiheim. Famous Rajba. Usually, the Allah is like Rabbi Yehuda. Why is Allah here like Rabbi Meir? Okay, beyond the discussion. The Rebbe once said that in Sifri, you see that Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda was Moida to Rabbi Meir. The bottom line is, you remain within the realm of Klaus Roll. Even though you abnegate, even though you abdicated the throne. You abdicated the throne. You even spit on the throne. You burnt the throne. But you're connected to the throne. Yisrael. But this child who's born from the non-Jewish mother, if he betroths a, a Jewish woman, there's no marriage. There's no Yisrael. He's not a Jew. He's not a Yisrael. So what do we see from here? What do we see from here? The Rambam says, don't take this lightly. Because here... We have to understand what the Rebbe is saying. He's saying a gevalt of Art in the Rambam based on the Rokachavah's Teich in the Rambam. It's not just the child is not Jewish. It's your child is not Jewish. Your child is Jewish. But as a result of your choice, you took a Jewish soul and you transformed it into a non-Jewish soul. This is an incredible, infinite power that a Jew has. Usually, I have to remain in the realm of God. It's not my world. I didn't create the world. I can't decide I'm a bird tomorrow and start flying. Or I'm a monkey and jump from trees. I'm going to hurt myself. (laughs) I'm not an eagle. (coughs) Or I'm not a fish. I'm a fish. I'm going to go into water. It's not going to work. You go into the mikveh you come out. Why? These are the boundaries of creation. I'm a human being. This is a fish. This is a bird. This is a mammal. I'm a Jew. I can't change that. I cannot change it. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew and I'm proud and I'll sing it. Out loud. Na, 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 na. Right? I'm a Jew. I may like it. I may not like it. I may love it. Ellie Wiesel once said, he said, you can either, he says, Jews either love God or they loathe God, but they don't know how to ignore God. You know, you can love your spouse or you can have issues with your spouse, but you can't ignore your spouse. I'm a Jew. Either I love it and celebrate it and breathe it and enjoy it and I dance every day with it. <speaking in Hebrew> or I'm like, <speaking in Hebrew> Like they used to say. Fine, that's your relationship, but you're a Jew. And a Jewish atheist is also a Jew. In fact, Jewish atheism is uniquely Jewish. You'll see that Jewish atheists, their atheism is Jewish because they deny God with religious Jewish fervor. You ever saw a Jewish atheist talk about God? He doesn't just talk about God and say he doesn't exist. He talks about God like a Jew. (laughs) He gets upset at God. (laughs) They say that an atheist once came to the Alter Rebbe and he was screaming, there's no God, there's no God. The Alter Rebbe said, Why are you getting so angry if he doesn't exist? <laughs> you can't he says, this doesn't exist, so why are you upset? So it doesn't exist, fine. If it doesn't exist, there's no reason to get upset. If something exists, you get upset. I, we say in Rambam, yeah, there's different halachas where this person is treated like a guy in terms of wine, in terms of other things, whatever it is, but they're a Jew. There's one exception. I take my child, my seed, my soul, it's supposed to be a Jewish soul. And God gave the Jew the ability to be able to take that soul and to transform it that it becomes a non-Jewish soul. Wow. That's a unique, unique, unique accomplishment that represents the koyach apkirah, represents the power of the Jew, just like God. In this way, we are godlike. We don't just fit into the rules; we create new rules. We create new realms. We recreate nature. Says the Rebbe. Now we'll understand what's happening. Here's the rule, and listen to this rule. Those who exclude become excluded. These Jews who were all arames, they caused all the children that came into the world as a result of that relationship to be excluded from Kal Yisrael. They took all their souls and turned them into non-Jewish souls. Mida They're also excluded. So when it comes to the count and you say, why doesn't God count them afterwards? To express his love to all those that were lost. He says, in terms of the love, it's as though they have been excluded from the flock. After the Cheta Eagle, the sin was Avoidizarra. It wasn't intermarriage. The sin was Avoidazorre, Avoidazarrah. You're my child. You're my child. Even if this punishment and it's serious sin. Afterwards, God says, Take account. I want to know who was lost, and I want to know the survivors. I love them. I'm the owner. Here, something else happened. This Boil ramus. Those who exclude are excluded. Those who include are included. They excluded all these souls. They threw them out of Klal Yisrael. Mida Keneged Mida. They're also considered excluded. So therefore, after the Mageifa, after the story, God says, I'm not involved in the census. He tells Moshe to count them. The shepherd needs to count them. We'll soon see why. But in terms of God, he's not counting them as the owner of the sheep expressing love. Because if he would count them, then he would mention not only the mageifa, he would mention also the other reason for death. Because it's no difference why they die. But because these were boyal Olaramuses, and therefore, and it's such a serious thing, soynei zimahu, you can't say chavivus over there. You can't say chavivus. And that's what the Rambam says. That this type of intermarriage, this type of act of intermarriage, causes the Jewish people to completely become entrenched in Avodah's K'chavim. It takes them away completely. So because of that, when it comes to Chavivus, when it comes to showing the love, they're excluded from that. The display of love cannot be applicable to them. When they completely extricated all their children, they extricated all their children from the Jewish people. They took Jewish souls and they ex- they, they excluded them. That's why he says, This halachic idea of the Ramam gives a whole new depth to what's happening here. So now, you want God to count them, to count those who were lost, count those that survived, to display his affection, his connection, his relationship. He wants to show how connected. But this is the one sin where you become disconnected. Now it's true that those Jews, even after they intermarried, they're still Jews, but all their children are not Jewish. So mida keneged mida, it's as though to some degree they're also excluded. So that connection, that serious connection and relationship which love intimates, doesn't apply to them. And therefore the owner doesn't say to count these sheep that were lost because it's like they're not my sheep. They took all their children and they went over to another nation. So they excluded themselves through that. Those who exclude become excluded. Now you're going to ask, what about counting the survivors? Okay, don't count those that were lost. Count those that remained. Lay dominion on Esaris. So the Rebbe says no. Because those who did not sin are not called survivors. They're not called leftovers. They're not called those who survived. It's as though there's no connection between the two groups. Even though there is a connection because they're part of one nation. But in terms of the love, in terms of that powerful display of affection, there's no connection. In other words, you can say, I'm going to count the survivors because I want to see who survived from the previous group where so many were lost. It's as though there's no previous group. It's as though you create, it's like a new nation here. It's not lay the ha-noisores to figure out the number of those that remained from the early group. It's as though there's no connection because it's as though the first group excluded themselves from being part of the flock, from being part of the nation, from being part of the people. They took their souls and they transplanted them and metamorphosized them and transformed them into non-Jewish souls. So you could count the people But if you're counting them, you're counting them as a new nation, as a new people. It's not you're counting them to figure out who was gone and who remained. They're not called people who remained. He says, Yes, even though they're still Jews. But that display of affection, that deep intimate connection that love represents, is missing because eleikehem shall elu zimohu. There's an element of sinna, of loathing, of disgust, which is the antithesis of chavivos. So this means that if you want to count the group that survived, it's like you're not counting the group that survived, that survived the others who didn't survive. It's like new chafzah, and yeshiv, sanayi chafzah, so now you folk, it's a new arm. So why are you counting? You want to count a group, count a group, but you're counting to see the contrast. You want to know how many were here before and how many are here now, because they're part of one group. But that group, it's as though it wasn't part of this group. So there's no they were here before and they're here now. The they, the 2 they's they're not the same unit. The they that were here and the they that are here are unfortunately like two separate nations because of what they did. So that's why God's count as an owner doesn't exist here. And that's why there's no word chavivus. So why is there a count? Moshe as a shepherd counts them. Moshe as a shepherd counts them. Hashem in terms of chavivus as the owner, he doesn't count. Rashi says who counts them? God tells Moshe you have to count them as a shepherd of the Jewish people and you feel responsible for the mageifa.'" Because you could have avoided it, or at least avoided it partially. So now it's your job to count them, to be able to make goods, to be able to make good on what was done, to be able to make men's, to be able to make sure that there's a new system in place for the future during the next months when you'll be leading them, and for you to always remember what has been lost, so that you can take care of them. So now you can ask a question, I don't understand. If God excludes them, why doesn't Moshe exclude them? Now comes the last piece of the Sikha. Tess. From here we learn the paradox. Two opposite lessons. We're going to learn now two lessons. And they're opposite. Tzavizdike means they're two extremes. One is on one side and one is on the other side. And really they're not opposites. But they could seem opposites. On one hand we see how deep and devastating is the result of the sin of marrying outside of the faith, of having real, physical relations with a non-Jewish woman. Because we see from here, it's not just if there's a child, the child is going to be not jewish In other words, your seed, your soul, your DNA, your divinity as a Jew, you're going to take it and transform it to becoming a non-Jew in that child. That's number one. But further, The person himself who did it, it's as though he's excluded from God's flock. Wow. he's excluded. Not just the child is excluded. He took a Jewish soul and transformed it into a non-Jewish soul. He himself is excluded. That's what we see here. That God says, I'm not counting them. They left. They're not, part of the, they're not part of the group. They're not part of the unit. And those who survived are not part of the first unit. It's like a new separate entity. In other words, the Rebbe says, <laughs> because they're not really excluded. <laughs> Even a Jew who intermarries, we'll see in a moment, is not excluded. He's a Jew. And these 24,000 Jews who died in the plague and the other 176,000 Jews who were killed, they're still Jewish. <laughs> they're still Jewish. He says, <laughs> But in terms of a revealed relationship of love and affection, it's not there. It's like a father wants to show love to a child. The child says, you're not my father. He changes his name. You can't change your DNA, but you could change your name. And you say, I'm never having to do with you. I'm going over to a different family. I don't want to see you. I could try to love you, but I need somebody to be able to be here and stay here to be able to love. Every other sin, the Jew still, even if he betrays, even if he betrays his father, he's still a Jew. Here it's one choice where we cross the ultimate boundary. Our child is not going to be a Jew anymore. And that's a boundary that is absolute and you crossed it. For a non-Jew to be a non-Jew, wonderful, wonderful. The Rambam says, yeshlem <laughs> The pious ones, the good Gentiles, have a Elam Abba. The Avodah says, Rabbi Meir Ben-Gabai, that good Gentiles are also going to have Tchis They're going to have the resurrection also. Fascinating. But to take a Jew and turn him into a non-Jew, that's the only possibility for that is Baila Ramas. And that makes that those who exclude are excluded. They themselves are, so to speak, excluded from saying my research. like you're not part of the flock anymore. Why? Because you're causing your souls, your child to become a non-Jew. So you, it's you yourself, so to speak, extricate yourself from the God's flock. The Lubavitcher Rebbe says, learn a lesson for the great privilege and the great responsibility for people who have the capacity to avoid and influence even an individual from marrying outside of the faith, from intermarriage. The Rebbe, of course, is speaking in 1974. Intermarriage in America and other parts of the world were becoming more and more rampant those years, especially in the 1970s. And he's saying, realize... The tremendous privilege, the tremendous responsibility of saving one Jew. One Jew! You say, yeah, but there's 15 million Jews. There's so many other Jews. You're right! But realize the tremendous chus to influence one Jew from engaging in intermarriage, not marrying outside of the faith. To explain to him that it's not good for him, it's not good for her. If you really love the non-Jewish girl, don't do something that ultimately will be detrimental for her. And she should understand that if she loves him, she shouldn't do something that's detrimental for him. Besides the statistics of the terrible divorce rate, which exists even marriages of people from the same culture. <laughs> You're talking about today in America, close to 50% divorce rate of first marriages, 60% second marriages. Some places it's a little less. But intermarriage has a unique, mind-staggering statistic of divorce, and it's very simple. It's not so complicated, because even two people who grew up on the same city and have the same culture and the same faith and the same tradition, even they have a hard time getting along. Ask any marriage therapist what's going on today in the world of marriage. You have somebody who comes from a different world. They're fine people, but from a different world. They'll never think about the Holocaust or Auschwitz like you feel about it. They'll never be able to feel about Israel like you feel about it. They'll never be able to be willing to die for the same things like you. And you can't expect it from them. You can't expect it from them. And a the very core place, you, from different worlds, you have to respect each other. But it's not for marriage. Because marriage is two souls becoming one. And you have to respect that boundary. Wonderful people. The Jew is a wonderful person. The non-Jew is wonderful. But you have to respect that boundary. The problem is that most people, they decide to get married in their 20s or their 30s when they're young, and religion and faith and tradition and family doesn't mean much, because you're young, you know, you're more bohemian and uninhibited, and you think nothing matters. Then they get married, and they get into their 30s and their 40s, they start having kids, and now becomes a question, bris? No bris. Bamitzvah? No, baptize. Christmas? Kratzma, Chanukah. Oy, can I uh, share with you the conflicts that happened then suddenly you realize you care about your father you care about your mother you care about your grandmother you care about your synagogue you care about your God you care about your faith and even if you're an atheist you want your son and daughter to know where they come from you want them to be cultural Jews you want a menorah Hanukkah and suddenly she wants to take them to church even she's an atheist you're both atheists But you're still people, you want to belong, you're part of a community, you're part of a family, you're part of a tradition, and as you're raising your children, you want them to have these connections, at least in many cases, and the conflicts are so powerful and so painful, and so many couples split up, and even those who don't are often a very, very rocky and difficult marriage. But besides all of that, besides all of that, besides all of that, this is something that's not good for the Jewish soul, it's not good for the non-Jewish soul. And as he puts it here, the Jew makes a step here that no other sin does. The giant step, what do they say? One small step. Ah, huh? One second, one second. One second. The step, the radical step here is, is, is tremendous. As the Rambam puts it, it's the one area in which I have the power to, so to speak, defy God's world. To defy God's structure. Because I take a Jewish soul and I don't just rebel, I don't just do avodah Desar, I don't just do other sins which are all very serious, but rather I transform the soul into a non-Jewish entity. And even for the person himself, even if you're not gonna have a child with the non-Jewish girl, you say, I'm not gonna have a child. The person himself, so to speak, transforms himself from being part of God's people. And he says, that's why those who can influence even one Jew. And then he says, even one time. You say, what's the big deal? He has a relationship with her. He says, a fellow Even if you can influence him that even one time he shouldn't have this relationship. He shouldn't engage in this sin. You have to realize the tremendous chus, the tremendous privilege in that. Including people who have already failed, who have already stumbled. And they already committed this. So you say, eh, they did it already. No, 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 no. A person doesn't understand how precious it is to help a Jew sin one time less, especially this. So he says, even if there's a relationship already, and he's been involved, so let it go. And I'm going to influence him what? For one time not to do it. He says, yes, you don't understand how powerful that is. Every time a Jew engages in such a type of relationship, what a stab in the chest of God it is. And therefore, if you prevent it, it's an incredible privilege. This is one side of it. Now, vintage Lubavitcher Rebbe, he's going to go to the other side. Now listen to this. <laughs> this is where you see the Rebbe. On the other side, let's look at this. Moshe Rabbeinu would count them. Moshe does not say they're excluded. And God doesn't want him to exclude them. As schmirle von seifen verguli is moischar baino de royen neman shall call you so over sich moisen neffisch fayden iden lake zu khan ein ich bin geja as euch see in sain marisoi der sailing is laid minion hanre saras euch see a telefon adoroi und noch mer nit a telbek zeh machen wow everything that we said is 100% true, comes the Rebbe and says, wait, Moshe, when it comes to take care of their needs, when it comes to protect them from wolves, when it comes to keep them safe and secure, soothed and seen, Moshe Rabbeinu, the faithful shepherd of all the Jewish people, is the man who will have Mesir Nefesh for every single Jew. He does not look at them and say, Get out! He will put his entire soul in to help these Jews. Lake Zecharain. He will immerse his entire being. Every fiber of his being will be dedicated even to help and rescue and preserve and elevate and inspire these Jews. He calls them Tzayin Marisa. You are my sheep. You are my flock. And therefore, God tells Moshe, I'm not going to count them as the owner who loves them because of what they did. But you, Moshe, the shepherd of the Jewish people, count them. Count those who are gone. And count those who are noisores, those who remained from the first group. In other words, it's still one group. They're all your flock. They're your people. They're part of Adoroi. They're all your flock. Even those that were engaged in this relationship and died. And they're not just at the edges of your flock. Rashi says, Toichadoroi. The wolves came into the essence, to the midst. They are in the middle of your flock. They're part and parcel of your community. They're connected to you, not just, you know, at the sidelines, all the way at the end, like Rashi says in Baal the Eriv Rav. No, no, no. This is Toichadoroi. And here the Rebbe answers the tenth question. The tenth question. What was the tenth question? Then the question was, in all the medrashim, the language is, Wolves came and fell on the sheep. Wolves killed the sheep. Rashi doesn't say that. Rashi, in his metaphor, says, The wolves went into the flock, and they killed sheep. But I don't understand. The, none of the medrashim say, the medrashim say, the wolves fell on the sheep. The wolves infiltrated the sheep. Rashi changes the language. He says the wolves infiltrated the flock. His flock. Now we get it. Moshe as a shepherd, he doesn't just say they ate sheep. He doesn't just say they fell on the sheep. No, no, no. These sheep are all my flock. They're my Eider. My Eider means your group, your hevre, your family, your tribe, your clan. Moshe the Raya Yisrael never gives up on every Jew, on any Jew. He will not exclude any Jew. You say, but he's intermarried. She's intermarried. He's intermarried. Forget about them. God says, I hate this. They took their children and made them not Jewish. They crossed the boundaries that nobody ever crosses. They crossed the boundaries that create. That's true. And that's why when it comes to the owner, The owner says there's no display of affection because of the very serious thing that happened. But you know what? Even such a type of Jew, Moshe, you never, ever give up on him. And you never, ever exclude him. And you never cease being a shepherd connected and attached to this Jew. You say, one second. (laughs) Rabbi, it's all nice, but (laughs) this is like a kafakela. First you go from one extreme, now you go to another extreme. And that's why he said there's two extreme lessons that we learned from here. And the truth is they're not a paradox. Because if it's about ego, if it's about me and my nachas and my comfort and what it looks like to me and my expectations, then you're right. You either go to one extreme or another extreme. But that's not how a Moshe Rabbeinu looks at it. And therefore it's not how the Rebbe looks at it. On one hand, you have to know what a serious issue we're dealing with. This is not a joke. Intermarriage is not a joke. And this chus to be able to influence one Jew to avoid intermarriage, even one time, one time, to avoid such a relationship, even if they have already engaged in it, is beyond estimation. That's absolutely true. The rabbi explains, the Rekhachav explains, and everything the sikh explains. But Moshe will still count them. Moshe still wants to know every Jew who was lost in the plague he feels responsible for them he feels that he could have avoided their deaths and he wants to make sure this never happens again and he wants to know who was lost and he wants to remember who was lost and he calls them Tsayin Marisa, this is my flock. They came in Letoich Adorei, they were part of my aid, they're my people. And when I'm counting the survivors, I call them survivors. They're still connected to the first group. It's one unit, part died and part survived. And I want to know who the survivors were, which means they're still connected to the first group because As the true Eved Hashem, as the true shepherd of the Jewish people, knows that after everything said and done, God wants you to always remain connected and to always remain loving and to always be a shepherd to protect them, to provide their needs, to be there for them in every possible way. And not just as the people who stand and I'll throw them a bone. No, no. These wolves came in to the middle, to the center of my flock. They are Part and parcel of my heart, of my soul. And of course, in this classic example, in footnote 46, the Rebbe shows the precedent for this. Footnote the AKC Bays, Va'atim Tisa Vim Ayin. God wants to wipe out the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf. And Moshe says, if you forgive them, great, and if not, blot out my name from your Sefer Torah. In other words, I cannot exist without the Jewish people. Even those who engaged in the golden calf. A similar thing happens here. Even though here it's not avoiders or it's boyol aramis. Moshe, so to speak, says, I do not separate from the people. They intermarried. They're I don't separate. I don't separate. I stay attached. I stay connected. Because ultimately that's what brings people back. Ultimately that's what brings people back. And he brings in 47, another fascinating idea. Everyone who inherited Eretz israel it's not the people who went into Eretz israel who inherited Eretz israel There was a whole system. Hamasim Yerishim, Esachayim. If four people went into Eretz israel four patriarchs of families, and they inherited Eretz Israel, the piece of land went back to their ancestors who left Egypt. And then it was bequeathed to their children. So he says, even these Jews who died in the plague, 24,000, and the other Jews who were killed, they too were part of those who inherited Eretz Yisrael as the dead who inherited the living, unlike the spies from whom it was taken. This means they were not excluded from the Jewish people. And then in 48, he brings a medrash at the end of Parshas Bullock that God didn't only want to count the survivors. He wanted to have a number of everybody who died. He says, because when a wolf comes in, to your flock and kills the sheep, you want to know all the sheep who died, not only all the sheep who are alive. So that's fascinating. That's fascinating. That after everything said and done, we see all of these hints that every one of them remains precious and every one of them remains divine. And the Rebbe says in 48, after quoting this Medrash, that we see that the Torah specifies the number of those who died in the plague doesn't specify the number of those who died by the judges, but those who died, he actually specifies. In other words, those who died by the plague, which Moshe felt responsible for, he specifies their number. And the Rebbe finishes the sikh, the last paragraph. This behavior of Moshe, This behavior of Moshe becomes part of Moshe, It's part of the lessons given to every Jewish person because everything in Torah is a lesson. It's a lesson for life. And the last Navi was the Navi Malachi. And the last message he gave the Jewish people was, Remember the Torah of Moshe, Hashem's servant. Zichru Torahs Moshe Avda. So this is part of the Torah and part of the lessons for every Jew, which we tell us, the Navi tells us, Remember the Torah of Moshe. This is part of the Torah of Moshe. I want you to always remember that together with the pain and the devastation of a Jew who engages in this type of behavior of Boyol Aramis and my responsibility to do everything to be able to influence him or her stay away from it. The other side of it is Moshe remains their shepherd. Moshe mourns them and longs for them and yearns for them and fights for them and wants to protect them from wolves in the past and the future. I will never exclude them. And this is part of what Moshe does as an Eved Hashem. Because there's a relationship that could never be severed. Even when you have crossed every possible boundary. Even when you have done the impossible. And you used your power of choice to cross such a boundary. I will not give up on you. And I will not sever my cords with you. And I will never, ever disown you. Let's take a few questions. Question. Why didn't Moshe tell Zimri that he got married before Matan Turner? Great question. There's a beautiful Sikh from the Rebbe about this Yud-Bes Tamos, test Chav 1969. I taught it a few years ago. If you go to theyeshiva.net, on top, on the homepage, there's something called Torah. You'll see a category Torah. In Torah you have Lekut Siches. Go Lekut Siches. Parshas Balak. And there you'll see a whole Shear about why Moshe didn't tell Zimri, I did it before Matan Torah. It's a gewaldike, a gewaldike, Chiddush of the Rebbe over there. Next question. Okay, somebody's asking here a question of if Chazal could make a mistake in physics or mathematics or science. It's a good question, but it's, it's beyond the realm of this class. It's, it's, it's an important idea, important conversation about, you know, the perspectives of Chazal on math and physics and science, but I just don't want to confuse myself or the listeners. So Moshe didn't think his reason was purely for Hashem. No, Moshe did, but he forgot the halacha and he felt, he felt responsible. Did you say that a crazy person should be killed? No, I said a crazy person can't be killed. Doesn't the Gemara say that violating Shabbos gives you the status of a non-Jew? I said that. But that's only in terms of certain laws. You're compared to a non-Jew, for example, that the wine that you pour, I can't drink. But if you go and you marry a Jewish woman, you need to give her a get. Why? Because you're still a Jew. Get it? But if you marry a non-Jew and you have a child, that child, if he marries a Jewish woman, if he betroths a Jewish woman, she doesn't need a get. We live with the devastation of this reality every single day. In our community, where I live, in the state of Texas, I can count the amount of children born to two Jewish parents on my hands. Do you understand what that means? You guys live in communities with a lot of Jews and big Jewish families. I can count on my hands... The amount of Jewish children born to two Jewish parents, either the father is Jewish and the mother is not Jewish, which means the child is not Jewish, or the mother is Jewish and the child is Jewish, but the father is not Jewish. Most children have only one Jewish parent in my community. This is a woman who's a shliach, she's a Chabad ambassador in, in the state of Texas. And unfortunately, more than not, it's only a Jewish father, which means the kids are not Jewish. It is really heartbreaking for me. This is the people I'm dealing with. This is the people I'm teaching. These are the people of my community, especially when the father starts to rediscover his Jewishness. He grows in his Yiddishkeit. He meets us, he starts coming to classes, he starts coming to Shabbos uh, uh, Davening and meals, and he loves Yiddishkeit. And now he's married to a non-Jewish woman and his kids are not Jewish. And I have to say, it's like a hell to be torn between their own soul that is on fire and the children they brought into the world who are not Jewish it tears my heart every single day it's a very very difficult situation of what has become of our people in the united states and other parts of the world <laughs> listen it's incredible what you're writing here and uh, you know i think people who don't live in such communities don't even begin to fathom what you're saying and 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 understand that your whole life and your whole mission and work connects to these is about connecting to these people. But I want you to remember, uh, uh, Dini, what the Rebbe is saying here about Maisha, which is incredible. That with the entire seriousness of intermarriage and what it means, but he says, Moshe Rabbeinu will never ever let go of these people. He will be there with them. He will protect them. He will drive away the wolves and he feels regret every single day that he couldn't protect them because that's what a shepherd is. And and you see here the paradox in the sikha, And it's a paradox that was so powerfully embodied by the Rebbe because it represents the emes of Torah. You see, we have two extremes. We have those who say, don't take halacha so seriously, and you know, you got to make peace with reality, and it's not as bad as you think, and it's fine, and there's precedent for it, and there's good intermarriages. You know, that's one extreme. And then you have the other extreme where you just say the truth. It's a horrible thing, and you just disown all these people. But here you see the nuanced, the nuance, the nuanced approach of the Rebbe, which comes only from attachment to Tachlis Ha'emes. When you're anchored in real truth, when you're anchored in Tairus Emes, when you're a Moshe Rabbeinu, when you follow Moshe Rabbeinu, who is an Eved Hashem, you see how both truths live together. On one hand, he explains at length the disaster of intermarriage on a spiritual level and on so many other levels. But then his punchline is, That even if God will not count these people as the owner of the sheep, but the shepherd will never stop counting them, counting those who were lost and counting those who were part of the group that were lost and survived. And that loyalty and that connection is, as he says at the end, is a lesson for every single Jew. What if the couples don't have children? He said that before. Children is just one element. If the couple has children, the child is not a Jew. But even if there's no child, the Jewish man who engages in this relationship and the Jewish woman who engages in this relationship, they are, so to speak, to a certain degree, extricating themselves from the flock of Hashem. Because intimacy touches the essence. You have to understand this. We see it in, in, in sexual abuse. A person could be mugged. A person could be traumatized in many ways, and it's horrible. But the effects of one-time sexual abuse is incredible. You know, a father hits his child, and it's the wrong thing to do. And the child gets hurt. If it happens once, I assume there won't be any serious impact. Maybe in some cases, but usually not. But if you're raped once, sexually abused once, it can have a devastating impact for decades and decades and decades. Why? Because sexuality touches the essence. (laughs) Touches the essence. That's why sexuality allows us to create a child. Sexuality goes into the deepest parts of your identity and your soul. And therefore when you're violated there, your essence is violated. People who don't understand this, don't understand this. And you could see they don't understand it. But if you understand it, you understand it. So, when I have one relationship, sexual relationship, with a non Jewish woman, there's no child. But that itself redefines the person's soul. That's what he says. And that's why they're not counted from God. So, that's why it's it's relevant even if there's no child. What if the woman is a Jew and the man is not Jewish? the relationship is still devastating but the child will be Jewish so it's, it doesn't have this component in terms of the child in terms of her herself yeah what if the children convert then they're Jewish <laughs> but that's only a, that's a new reality that happens later but the fact is that I took my soul which is Jewish and my child which has a Jewish soul and through my act I transformed that soul into a non-jewish soul what about the changes in he himself? Is it only a change in his child? Yeah, a Jew who intermarries still is a full Jew, <laughs> and he still has to put on tefillin, <laughs> and he still has to keep Shabbos. But as we said, there is something about it that is very, very uniquely serious. It's as though he's extricating himself from the divine flock. Question: This is a question Rabbi Shalom Moshe Paltiel sent me. He's the rabbi, the chief rabbi of Port Washington. And he asked the Gavaldic a question. I don't understand. The Rebbe said that the first answer is insufficient. Why? Because Hashem should have told Moshe to bring Yehoshua on board. Okay. So Rashi gives a second answer. What's the second answer? The answer is that Moshe did the count because he was about to pass away. And therefore he gave back the Jewish people by number just like he was given. They were given to him with a number. So when Moshe returns the flock, he also does it with a number. And Rashi says when Moshe returns the flock. So of Shalom Moshe asked a question I don't understand. If the first answer is insufficient because of the reasons the Labavitcher Rebbe explained, why don't we just go back to the, 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 the question at the beginning of the Sikh? Rashi already said in the beginning that in the beginning of Amit, B'mitoichi basan lefan of Maina oisam kolsha. That it was because of the love that Hashem counts the Jewish people constantly. Why invent a new answer then? You're saying the first answer satisfies the vayhi acharei The second answer doesn't satisfy the vayhi acharei If the second answer doesn't satisfy the vayhi acharei go back to the answer of Bamidbar. He counted them because he loves them, and because he loves them. Therefore, he counts them. And that's why he counted them again. In other words, if the first answer is not a good answer, why is the first answer not a good answer? Because Yeshua should have been part of it. Because it's about the shepherd thinking about the future. So that's why you have to ignore the first answer and give me a second answer, Dover Akher, and come up with a whole new reason. Why? To count the Jewish people, because Moshua is about to die. If you have to come up with a whole new reason... Go back to the basic reason that they never discussed in the beginning of the Sikha. and God loves them. So whenever there's any significant change, especially loss among the Jewish people, He wants a count. That's it. I, I you'll say, why did it say ha ha after the Ma The second answer doesn't explain the Vahi right? Anyway, doesn't explain the Vayiachri Gaifa. So the question we had with Vayiachri why don't you mention all the other deaths, still is with the second answer as well. Why don't you mention all the other deaths? Because the whole Vayiachri Gaifa doesn't make sense according to the second answer, which is why it's only a second answer, not a first answer. So why don't you just go back to the basics and just say, Davor Acher, Mitoi of because of the Chibes and therefore, he counted them now. You have a question, Okay, you have a question. I got it. That's why I gave you a first answer. But the first answer was problematic, right? The roya, the You should have had Yeshua. So go back to the second answer. And what's the second answer? The answer to this is, if I'm not mistaken, it's simple. The moment you said, And you ignored the 176,000 Jews who died, you right away showed me that this is not about chiboson. You can't go back to that. Even though that was 24,000 and you ignored 176,000 means you're not in the realm of chibos anymore. You're ignoring most of them. Why are you ignoring most of them? Why doesn't the owner care about 176,000 people and only 24,000 people? If it's Mitoi on the front of Maina Eisem Kol Sha, is to 200,000 people as much as it is to 24,000 people. But is seven times the amount. The fact that you said V'hi Achre whether the first part of the second part, you went away from the world of chibasan, And that's why Rashi had to say that it's about the raya, and it's about Zaevim, and it's not about the owner. He can't go back and say, no, really, it is about the owner. So why does it say, the question of Magefer is too strong. To go back to Chibosam. Mageifer proves that it's not the getter of Chibosam. The problem is, the first answer is not fully satisfactory. Why is it not fully satisfactory? Because Yeshua should have been there. So he says there's another reason why the count happened. Not Chibosam, because Moshe was about to die. It says, Ma ageifer, so you have to teach. Vahiyachriyam Gaifa means, after the ageifer, something else happened. What's the connection? You have a good question. Yeah, I have a problem with that. But it means chronologically. After the mageifa. Why don't you mention 176,000? Great question. Great question. Great question. And that's why I need the first answer. I need the first answer to answer that question. Why you mentioned mageifa. But you had a problem with the first question. With the first answer. So I'm giving you another vart. Why he achir mageifa would be. Like somebody would say. After the time of the mageifa, sometime later, a day later, a week later, a month later, Hashem told the Moshe to count the Jewish people. It would be like chronological. V'hi achri ha-mageifa, after the mageifa, Hashem told him to count. Is it connected to the mageifa? No. Why does it say "vahi achri ha Good question. That's why I went back to my first answer. But achri is about chronological. So one second. So why don't you just say Mitoichi Basan Lefanov? Because Mitoichi Basan Lefanov was already excluded by the first explanation of Rashi. The second explanation can't undo everything the first explanation provides. The first explanation tells us that there's a big issue, that you can't say there's an element of Chibosan, because this is too of a stark uh, emission to exclude 176,000 people. So there's a big problem. That's why Rashi told you that it was the Raya who wanted to count. The Raya who wanted to count. And because it was the Raya who wanted to count, because of his responsibility, therefore it says, Mageif. Why is your Yeshua not here? So I'm going to give you another explanation. Not Chibosah. V'hi Achriyam Hageif. After the Mageif. Sometime after. God says, count the Jewish people. Why? Because you're about to die. And therefore it's time to give them back with a misper. Ah, you could have just said, Hashem told them to count. Okay, you have a good of a Achriyam So now you're going to tell me. One second. So already say. Why doesn't it say the 176,000? Uh, you have a good Kasha. You have a good Kasha. But it's Mitoi Chibosah. No, because that right away tells us that it's already not chibasim because you're ignoring so many people. So I think that's why he goes to a new second pshat and he doesn't go back to the Metal chibasim of Did I answer your question? I think there's something here. I think there's something here. By the way, take a look in the Sifse and the Maskaladavid. They both struggle with the second Pshat. That Eber brings both of their Pshatim, Maskala the Khamim, and he disagrees with them. You'll see why. So that's why I'm not. I'm, they they give other they give other pshat, which he brings in the footnotes, masculadavid and severe chamad. But but that's not negate to your question. Another interesting thing is that Rashi in the second pshat, Rashi says, if you take a look at his lushan, what's his lushan? Um, uh, Even in the second pshat. Rashi uses the mashal. U'lahachzir tzaynai. He's about to return his tzayn. His tzayn. Machzirah Baminyan. So why does Rashi have to say here, l'achzir tzaynai? Achshav she'kharav l'amuz, u'lahachzirahm. The first, he doesn't think she had the in the nims, the nimser soin la Moshe, the nimseru. So you say, after a lamos of lamas, ullah hachziram, machziram Why does Rashi put in soinai into the second shot? Why? Did you think about that? Why? I understand soinai in the first shot. Why soin in the second shot? Now, what's the vart? The vart is because maybe, maybe Moshe is about to return his flock. It's his soin. It's his son, b'meila machzirim b'minyan. They became his son. Why is that so relevant here? I got them from you. I got a gift from you. You gave me with a number. I have to give it back with a number. Why do I have to give it back with a number? Let's say Reb Moshe, you deposited in my house, yeah, in my in my in my farm, which is a hundred which which is a thousand acres. You deposited ten thousand sheep, and you went on vacation for a year or for 40 years, and now you come back. And you say, can I have, Rabbi, why Why can I have back the sheep? I say, of course. And I come to you and I say, listen, you gave me with a number, we went through 10,000, let me give you back your 10,000 sheep, and I count them. What happens if the number you gave me, I don't give back to you? <laughs> I don't give you back 10,000 sheep, I give you back 5,000 sheep. I have to be accountable, right? I have to say, listen, this is what happened, and here is what I'm giving back to you. Especially if I was negligent. If I was not negligent, then I still want to give you back the number, but it's ultimately not about me. But especially if I didn't do my job well, over here I especially have to specify the number, because this was my responsibility. And that's why we have shemachinum, shoyel, all the when you're accountable, you're not accountable. If so, the second pshat, if I'm right, the second pshat in Ashi is a continuation to the first pshat. Because Rashi is saying that Moshe really felt the need to give the number of 24,000 people because that was his responsibility. (laughs) If so, the question of the Rebbe, why only the Magafer is mentioned, is also answered a little bit in the second answer. That after the Magafer, where Moshe felt responsible, he he wanted to especially give it back with numbers and say, here are the numbers and 24,000 are missing. I don't think it's Mamre straightforward Pshat, but maybe this is just Abyssal Hamtokeh, why he doesn't go to the Mitochibosim, because this also explains the union of Mageifa. It still doesn't explain why he achere ha that it's directly connected to the Mageifa, because the idea here is that he's giving back Klal during his Misa. But could be this Abyssal Shtikl Hamtokeh, that after the Mageifa, where the numbers, 24,000, were, were a result of Moishas, Kevayachal, not doing his job fully, so therefore he felt more than has to be Machzer B'minyin. Okay. Any more questions? Oh wow, it's late. Oh, so many questions. Wow. Can I in hara? Can I in hara? La mizan tutsach. La tutsach. Another thirteen questions. Okay, very good. Yesterday, not yesterday, Tuesday morning, I gave a shir In Rishimus Choyveres Tesvav. Lubavitcher Rebbe speaks to Sugi and Yuma, Pe Gimel. It can be tomorrow, Shabbos. If a building collapses, so whether you know if somebody's there or not there, and even if he's there, he may be dead, and you don't know if it's a Jew or an Andrew, you still have to clear the rubble. The Rebbe goes through all the three ideas from a spiritual perspective. There's a Jew, he may be there, he may not be there. He may be alive, he may be dead. He may not even be Jewish, which means he's completely alienated, and you still have to clear the rubble. That third level is mamish consistent with the idea in the sikha about Moshe Rabbeinu with these Jews who are Boil Yeah, very good horror, very good order. The shepherd, the way I understand it, the shepherd wants account, the owner wants account. The owner is concerned about his inventory. The conscientious employee, shepherd, also wants to know how he erred to avoid it again. It's not about inventory. Yes, very well. I don't understand. Moshe doesn't exclude and God does. It doesn't make sense. Moshe is more compassionate than Hashem. And God told Moshe to count them. So God also counts them. Moshe doesn't give up on any Jew, and God does. Great question. The answer is, it's like by the Chet HaEgel, he brings in 46, footnote 46. God says, I'm going to wipe out all the Jewish people. I'm going to start with you. Moshe says, no, no, no. If you don't forgive them, then wipe me out as well. Blot me out. Well, one second. So Moshe was more compassionate than God. Hashem tells Moshe, leave me alone so I could wipe them out. So Rashi says, God was telling Moshe, if you don't let me go, I won't be able to wipe them out. He was basically tell him, telling him, I need you to fight back. Because in our relationship with Hashem, there's two levels. There's the conscious revealed relationship that can be interrupted through sin, especially idolatry and adultery. And then there's a deeper, superconscious relationship that can never be obliterated. So Moshe brought out that deeper relationship. It's called it Tzur. He brought out the deeper relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people and Hashem wanted He should bring out that deeper relationship that could never be broken. And here too, Hashem says, I myself, I'm not counting them as the owner who just loves his inventory and wants to display that love because of the terrible, terrible thing that happened. The choice of these people to exclude themselves from my flock. But He tells Moshe to count them. Because as a shepherd, you never ever let go of them, even though they have crossed such a powerful boundary. You never ever disown them. Um, just a special mention and tribute to one of my teachers in yeshiva who has taught us chassidus for many years, and he passed away yesterday. Harava Rav Reb Pinchas, Rabbi Yeshua, known as rapinia Korf, of blessed memory, who passed away yesterday at the age of 86. He was a a true and special chassid, a true God-fearing Jew who embodied in his daily behavior very, very authentic Yerushalayim, fear of God and love of God, and inspired and mentored many, many, many hundreds or thousands of students over the years. And uh, he returned his soul to its maker yesterday, and I wanted to mention a tribute to his loving memory of Repin Yaakov, Repinchas B'Rabiyah Yeshua. Thank you very much. Everybody have a beautiful and inspiring and meaningful day and a lot of hatslocha in everything. I hope you'll be able to review the Sikha well and uh, have a great Shabbos. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes.